the Bioceuticals Integrative Medicine Awards showcase the outstanding talent we have in the Australian complementary medicine profession. Nominations are now open for the 2018 Beamer Awards. For more information and to book your ticket to the gala dinner, visit bioceuticals.com.au slash BIMA. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me in the studio today is Elizabeth Mucci. Elizabeth is a mentor, educator and healthcare professional with over 17 years experience in integrative hormonal and reproductive medicine. As a scientist, nutritionist and herbalist with a master's in reproductive medicine, Elizabeth is a passionate health advocate whose principles as a clinician and teacher have enabled her to help thousands of patients start their families both in Australia and overseas, including the US, UK, Canada, China and Japan. Prior to joining Elizabeth's fertility program, most of these patients have been facing particularly challenging fertility issues that have resulted in multiple miscarriages and repeated IVF failures. Elizabeth's great ambition is to provide both her patients and peers with the tools that they need to help more people around the world to build the happy, healthy families they've dreamed of. Welcome, Elizabeth, to FX Medicine. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Elizabeth, I have to ask you first about your education because you started off from a purely science basis and then moved into natural medicine. It's very often the other way around. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So tell us what first drew you to doing biochemistry and physiology. Um, I've always had a passion and curiosity in knowing how the body works. Mm. Um, And as a younger child, you know, animals, plants, everything. And I think that um, just as I was going through, I I always loved science, but as I was going through, I could see the path I I wanted to sort of take. It Mm. was branching off into human you know, obviously human science, but then particularly in helping the body be at its optimum, looking at what that meant, what we could do about it. And, um, yeah, I studied with some amazing professors. Um, I would, you know, ask them lots and lots of questions. And if, if this was sort of supported or if this was set up, could that then mean that we could achieve this? And often they go, yes, they, we, it could mean that we could achieve that. And that just got me on fire. For so the, the thing that I'm picking up is that you have been eternally curious. Mm. So you would have been a painful child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got lots of questions. <laughs> and so what did your biochemistry education teach you, not just about reproduction, but about any disorder that, that humans encounter? What it showed me was that there were ways to support, or and I like to use the term scaffold, um, using a scaffold system that if that will help us support our body biochemistry and therefore, you know, accept maybe um, lacking particular enzymes or or whatever condition that we have, but trying to support that that biochemistry and therefore see where that led. And also 
what was, um, I am a kill two birds, one stone type of person. And the more I can sort of, you know, uh, fix with the one sort of solution, the better. So I, I realized that if we kept following back this biochemistry, um, a lot of them were linking to some major sort of issues. Mm. And therefore in dealing with where the source of the issue was, we were fixing lots of th symptoms and things at the same time. That really got me intrigued. So with regards to that biochemical scaffolding, you mm -hmm. know, and, and in the, the picture in my brain is the bow ringer mm -hmm. biochemistry pathways. Mm -hmm. the, you know, I just, I love them. I still have my um, poster, the yep. two posters, yeah. yeah. And I found the book the other day. It yeah. was stacked away somewhere. I found it. So I'm really pleased. But when we're looking at that scaffolding and, and you see the enzymes, mm -hmm. What we don't often hear about or get taught about are the, the nutritional requirements for those enzymes. Indeed, there are other requirements. There's temperature, there's acid or alkaline. Oh, 100%. There's, so there's all of these other things that we don't know. Mm -hmm. And we just assume that they happen because mm. that's life. Mm. But those enzymes require that to work. How important are these other things that we don't, we can't give in a supplement. Mm, we need mm. warmth. We oh, need yeah, fluid, mm. you know. Oh, definitely. You want the right condition and therefore, you know, and, and that really helps in diseased states in particular because you might think, okay, in this particular diseased state, the body might be sacrificing other sort of, con you know, optimal conditions um, to try and help a particular other area. Uh -huh. um, and infertility, that's quite important, especially when you look at, you know, the testes of the male is on the outside of the body to keep it cool. And then, but he might be one of, you know, he might want to keep really fit and decided to do a whole heap of exercise yep. and heating up the body. And in then, tight shorts. Yeah. 100%. Or in a, um, you know, Bikram classes and, you know, all that sort of stuff where you're thinking that, that you know, that might be fine in, for certain conditions or p for people, but, you know, it could be really damaging for, you know, fertility, say, for instance. So with regards to these basic sort of things, you know, temperature and, and moisture and pH, for instance, mm -hmm. a common naturopathic concept is the one of alkalinity mm -hmm. or acidity. Mm -hmm. And I've always been rather sceptical of what we're measuring. Mm. Where are we measuring it? Because the body has these elegant, you know, amino acid, carboxylic versus bicarbonate, mm -hmm. buffer systems. Right. And it's, how out of phase can they get? And what issues do they present people, let's say, with fertility issues? Like, like how overt are they? Um, so that's going to be different for different people. So what you have is some people, depending on the genetic makeup, will be a lot tougher and resilient in particular situations. And then you've got other people with, you know, a slight temperature. It's just totally wrecked it for them um, in that particular month, say, for example, or, or um, whatever. We all might have someone that's drinking a lot of alcohol and they're becoming quite acidic um, and they could even have inflammation and joint pain and a whole heap of things happening as a result. But their fertility, when you go and test their sperm analysis, is looking quite fine. Right. And then you'll have somebody else that can't drink at all. And then and the slightest amount of alcohol that they've had is actually having a massive impact on their fertility. So a lot of it is about looking at what um, ancestry that person might have. That's one I particularly go for. I mm. always ask, where are they from? Um, 
As in geographically? Geographically. Wow. Yeah. So geographically, because if you're coming from maybe like quite an ancient background, I mean, that's a survival of the fittest. A lot of them didn't have antibiotics back then. So you've got a lot more resilience in some sort of areas than you have in others. You've got other people, say, for instance, that might be people um, who have come from desert areas um, and they thrive in that. And then you put them into our sort of zones and then they're putting a load of weight on because they're having what we deem maybe a healthy diet, but for them that sugar load is way too much and is causing a whole heap of inflammation and and et cetera. So is that something that you lean towards genetic testing or or at least the ancestry genetic testing for, or do you just ask them? Yeah, I don't go that far, but I just ask them and often um, I just sort of find that actually helps me guide their dietary requirements Mm. as well. Um, Because, you know, people from the Mediterranean areas, um, the Mediterranean diet is better for them. We know that sugar will be much worse for them. They will tend to become a lot more inflamed. And often a lot of polycystic ovarian syndrome girls come from that area. And so, um, and hence the sugar sort of delicate, you know, sort of situation there. And compared to someone who might come from Asia who can eat rices and, and things like that. You know, I've discussed this with a few practitioners with other conditions as well, and it's a, it, it keeps on seeping through. What is resilience? How do you define that? I use tools like iridology and, and things like that in my practice. Um, but it's, it's more about hearing their history. Mm. You know, I would run them through a whole bunch of questions about um, how well um, they handle, how often they get sick, uh-huh. you know, what's their immune system like, yeah. do they have aches and pains, do they tend to get um, joint pain, Um, Tired all the time. Yeah, yeah. You know, what happens to them if they've done quite a bit of exercise or what happens if they've been out in the cold and the rain and and things like that? And also their family history. You know, were there um, autoimmune diseases in the family? You know, what other things were there in their family history? Because they're carrying the genetic makeup of their family history. So, um, yeah, I suppose it's more putting all of that together and listening to things like, you know, I often ask... Um, what are you craving? And just in that sort of, you know, if they go, oh yeah, I just crave sugar or, you know, or I'll ask them to rate their energy out of 10. And then I'll break that up. You know, what are they like when they wake up in the morning? What are they like in the afternoon? And I'm listening to the waves of sugar going through the day, you right. know, that sort of thing. And some people just go 10 out of 10 and you can hear that they, you know, their diet doesn't tend to match what we would expect that would require for you to have a 10 out of 10. Mm. So you know they're a lot tougher. They sort of, you know, they have that atypical personality um, type of character and you know their grandparents have lived over 100 or they've lived to 95. So that's what I tend to sort of think, okay, these these are tougher constitutions. And usually what I find is once I start treating them, they get better very quickly. They respond very fast Mm. to the treatment. I love your line of questioning with regards to how they respond to a stressor. Because mm. I've never heard a practitioner really actively ask that about how do you respond once you've given a stressor. That's yeah. a really good practical point, I think. Mm. You did the medical or the scientific education first and then opened up to natural therapies. Yep. Why? When I finished the degree, and I, the, the double major, what it did was it... Because I did physiology, which is that um, the function of organs and the structure, and then I did the biochemistry, I could really see how 
I could support the biochemistry to help the physiology. physiology yeah. And so for me, it was more looking about uh, outside that that sort of circle. Okay, now that I've got all this knowledge, how do I help people live their optimum life? And so um, I was going to go down the road of medicine, but I could see the limitations. Um, and so therefore I then went and, you know, visited a naturopath and I, I could see that limitation. And so I could, I was really excited about looking at if you had this knowledge that I had and I could use all these other tools then and combine them with that knowledge, then where would that? That should theoretically help me help people mm. live their optimum life. And so as I started going down that path, I could see, yeah, I could really, that, that, was, that was sort of ringing true. I could really put the two together. Um, and yeah, it just went on from there. What interests me, I guess, is where you intervene as a drug or a biochemical sort of entrance or a entrance therapy, do you say, okay, let's, um, let's, why didn't a drug company pick Farnesyl rather than HMG coenzyme A? Was it easier? Like, do they cover this in biochemistry? Is it due to perhaps reverse um, pathways, um, bi-directional pathways? With me, the feedback systems were really important. Ah, right. That was very, very important because it's, you're looking at, not and and this is where I think if you don't know your science really well, you're going to have problems with um, just following what is given to us as if there's this problem, this is what we do. Yep. Just very similar to with the medical industry. It's sort of, you know, when you see this disease, these are the drugs you've got to choose from. Instead of looking at, okay, is it the fact that this is low in the bloodstream or high in the bloodstream, or is it because the organ's half asleep and actually needs toning right. so that it listens better to the hormone that's being pumped down? Right. And infertility, that's huge. So a lot of the time, and this, and this happened along the way, and this was what was really interesting. When I first started, they were talking about FSH, yep. the follicle-stimulating hormone, and people were coming to me saying, oh, apparently I'm menopausing because my follicle-stimulating hormone's really high. And um, to me, that just didn't make sense. It, it made sense with one part of it, but there was another part to that, that pathway. So I, what I put together was, okay, just because your follicle-stimulating uh, hormone's high, what does that actually mean? You've got the pituitary pumping out this hormone that's trying to get the ovary to produce a follicle and grow it. But if that ovary has been bombarded or damaged by maybe IVF drugs or the pill for 20 or 30 years, if it's been put to sleep for so long, the follicle-stimulating hormone would have to rise so high to actually try and get that very lazy ovary to wake it up. To wake it yeah, up. Yeah. So is it the fact that she was actually menopause or is it the fact that we need to go in and deal with the ovary first, wake it up, tone it, get it in its best shape, and then watch what happened? So I started doing that. So I kept saying they were panicking and often I would go, look, let's go into the ovary and let's start to actually work on the reproductive organs and see what happens. And lo and behold, most of the time the FSH was dropping and they were starting to ovulate and they were doing really well and then they'd fall pregnant. So I've had women that have been told they've menopause to come back out of that situation and go on to have a child um, 
just because I've taken the other end of the pathway. Mm. Now, was that your biochemistry physiology training that taught you that? Yes. Or your natural? No. The biochemistry physiology training taught me about the feedback systems. The naturopathy gave me the tools, and if you really understood it, you knew how to use it. How do you ratify? How do you marry the two, when you come from like quite a hardcore scientific background mm, mm. and you're marrying this, you know, that's a pseudoscience mm, thing. Mm. And yet that gave you the tools to intervene. hundred percent. I think it's about being open. So that's where, I mean, it's, you've got to actually be extremely uh, willing to be humble enough to go, look, I'm just because I wear this hat doesn't mean it's the only hat to wear. I often say to people, you know, I'll hold up um, a cup with, with my patients and um, it, it might have a drawing on one side and me blank on the other. And I'll say to them, you know, if I asked you to draw this cup, your cup's going to look really different to my cup. We're right. both right though. Yeah. And for me, it's always been about walking around the cup and getting a full perspective. And that's the way I view all of this. You came out of doing um, biochemistry and physiology. Yeah. You then went on to do naturopathy. Oh, yep. Sorry, forgive me, herbal medicine. Yeah, and uh, nutritional science. And nutritional science. Mm -hmm. Then you went to practice. Yeah. So what happened? Did you just go, oh, this is fantastic. I know both sides. I can talk, the scientific talk. I understand it. And I have the tools to actively treat people and they're working. Did it immediately fall into place? Um, a lot of it fell into place. I trained with um, a naturopath for a while who was in uh, fertility. And again, as I was working with them and I sort of thought, oh, there's so many more questions you could ask here. This is actually, if, you, if you're going down this path, if you ask this, this and this, it would open your eyes to this whole other biochemical sort of world and you would know how to fine tune this. So that sort of helped me get the confidence, I suppose, and, and, and know what sort of questions I could fine tune. Mm. And so what I often do with patients is, I take them through, you know, particular questions that I'll go, okay, now that you've said that, let me just take you down this path. And they'll go, well, yes, that, how did you know that? And yes, how do you know that I'm, I'm waking up through the night? And how do you, and because you would know the biochemistry. Yeah. And then I would, if, if I'm going down a path and they're saying, no, no, that's all fine. Then I'll go, okay. And I'll branch off to a different path because I'll know, okay. So it's not the, maybe the magnesium sort of pathways, but it might be the sugar pathways. And that might be why you're not sleeping very well. So then I would go, okay, now let me ask you these other questions though. And so it's just more, it, it just the two marry so beautifully. Mm. And it was, yeah, it's really about fine tuning. I think if I was going to, um, you know, suggest maybe to, to practitioners, you know, what, what sort of things could help them is just get some really good solid questions that are going to help them know, okay, if this person is saying that at that particular time of their cycle, this is what's happening, then that might mean a whole heap of other stuff. Yeah. So people will often say to me very commonly, they will say, oh yeah, I've been suffering, you know, that the PMS sort of symptoms, but that the doctor said that's normal. And often I'll say to them, yeah, that might be normal yeah. <laughs> um, or that might be common, yeah. but it doesn't mean that it's healthy. What it's, your body's doing is it's crying out, telling us I'm out of balance here. So I'm going to give you these symptoms, but because there's a whole heap of people out of balance, it's seen as common. Yeah. Where with me, it's like, you know, I'll ask questions like, okay, did you feel tired before you got your period? or while you got your period, because they're two different things. Mm. You know, one will be a sugar 
issue. One will be an iron deficiency, you know. And so it's really knowing about what happens at different stages, that real fine tuning. And that can only come with education. Uh, well, I've got to say that education was specifically primed for you to, <laughs> to go into a biochemically driven uh, thing like World. for like fertility. Mm. You know, what's interesting to me is though, it also depends on the level of education that you're getting. For instance, 10, 15 odd years ago, I would commonly hear this term that progesterone is the, you know, the, the hormone or pregnenolone um, is the, the precursor to all of the other steroids sort of based hormones. And yet I would see in all of my anatomy phys texts, whether it be Tortora and Anagnosticos, I think it's Tortora and Berritsen or something now, um, he's gone through two authors, whether it be Marieb, whether it be Spence and Mason, doesn't, does, didn't matter, my favourite anatomy phys books. And every single one said that the testes secreted testosterone. Mm. And there was only one text where I ever saw testes produce pregnenolone and they're quickly, it's quickly changed to testosterone and that's what's secreted. Mm. So that really then is dependent on the level of text or the specialty of text that you get. Hmm. 100%. (laughs) We should be really rallying or lobbying our educational um, institutions to use better texts then. A hundred percent. And I, that's, that is what I get the most passionate about. It's, you know, often what's happening with patients that I see is that they're coming to me, um, through, you know, lots of years of IVF. Um, they've been down, they've exhausted all these different people and, um, you know, acupuncturists, naturopaths, IVF specialists, different IVF specialists. They've done a whole heap of things and they're basically saying, well, they've said I've got hardly any eggs left and, you know, I've got to use a, a donor. You know, that's what that's a very typical sort of story. And then in the end, what's happening in is that people aren't looking at what else is out there? Because mm. these industries, obviously, that's they they've sort of fine tuned their particular things that they're doing. Mm. But when I studied the masters in reproductive medicine, what I was shocked about was the fact that they actually, the medical world, knows a whole heap more, but for some reason, it's not being translated to these patients. So it'll be in the hands of, I suppose, the the beholder who decides to use or do whatever mm. they're doing. But this particular, this particular um, gyno book that I was reading talked about this group of people um, in the States. There was a, a study done, I think it was about eight years now, maybe a bit longer, maybe 10 years, where they looked at all these people in a, um, an area of America. And basically they get married at a very young age and they have babies till they can't have babies anymore. And so they were looking at, did they reflect the same stats as what we do here? And the stats were totally different. Oh, really? Really different. So you sit there and think, okay, if the biochemistry is the same, then why is this happening? And that excited me because it was like, okay, so if we reflect what's going on in this area, then maybe we will start to reflect these uh, stats. And so even though, um, because what I was finding in my room where they might, you know, uh, the common stats are that, you know, at 40, you've got about 5% chance of falling pregnant. And at 45, it's a 0.5% chance. That wasn't what this group was showing. This group was showing that at 40, only 17% of their 
um, couples had lost their fertility. And wow. at 45, only 33% had lost their fertility. So you're talking about 67% of 45-year-old women were having babies. Fine, yeah. And so I was thinking, well, hang on. If they're obviously made the same way, what is it about these people that was allowing them to still fall pregnant? And that it's that sort of stuff that I've seen over and over. And I mm. think that's giving us a clue. They're, they're really, they're pockets here that are giving us a clue of, is it that the eggshell is hardening and the sperm can't get in there? Is that really? Because why isn't that happening over here? Yeah. Or is it the fact that they got married as virgins and there was no infections introduced? Oh. So all of a sudden you've got all these infections and they yeah. know that. They know yeah. that infections are having a major impact. Yeah. And then it's about how do we test for them and how do we actually convince a doctor that this particular one, even though it's common, is actually having an impact. Um, you know, and I've had girls come to me going, oh, I've got natural killer cells. And to me... Hopefully that, you have. <laughs> <laughs> and to me, that would go infection maybe, yeah. where to somebody else, they would go, oh, yeah, you're one of those women. Right. So we better use pregnazone. We go into the clexane. They use all these other things. Yeah. And instead of thinking, that's a bit of a Why? clue, yeah. maybe we'd better look if there's an infection. And a lot of the time they do have an infection and we've checked, you know, for infections that aren't commonly checked for. So not just aerobic, but anaerobic. So I often check for urea plasma and mycoplasma. You'll get a lot of um, people, uh, particular GPs, if they don't know that that what it does, because it is common, they'll refuse to sort of do the check and all the rest. Um, but we'll check for those. And I've had girls who have done IVF for six years. We get rid of the infection. That's, I've only just started with them and they've fallen pregnant on the withdrawal method, trying not to fall pregnant after six years of IVF failing because we've got rid of the infection, you know. Okay, so the intervention here, how do you get rid of the infection? Well, the thing Traditionally is... Traditionally antibiotics? Well, I do yep. because for me it's about speed, yep. getting this sort of happening and supporting that. So doxy? Doxycycline is a typical one. Yeah. But in that case, sometimes the infections not have been there for so long that 10 days on doxycycline is not doing the trick. No. So what I tend to do is I use my herbs as well as, um, you know, support. Yeah, both. This is where I, I like the marriage of natural and pharmaceutical medicine, mm -hmm. let's say it. But I do like the way that herbs and natural medicines can, A, make pharmaceutical medicines or outcomes more effective and B, less, um, have less side effects or, yeah. or reduce the risk of side effects. Do you find that practically working with fertility couples? Definitely. Yeah. Yep. And often even with, um, look, some of my patients come to me, they've done, you know, IVF for years and years and years. I have to go back to do IVF. They've failed over and over. We know they've got to go back. The, the woman might not have tubes, um, or the guy, um, has to, um, can't ejaculate sperm and they have to go into the testes. So we know they've got to go back. And so it's more about getting their bodies in optimal, um, situation. And then when they're going through the IVF, supporting that so that, um, they get the optimal result. Most of them, it's very rare that I won't get a, a positive result out of that. But that's even though they've failed. And that's more, a, I suppose the take-home message for me is um, do your research, you know, check what's there. Don't just go, okay, I've been told that you, you're, you're, um, you failed 
this, so therefore it must be that you're really stressed and we'll deal with the stress. Um, or it might be that, oh, we found there's a the thyroid problem. So that's what it is. Usually I found it's about three or four problems that are having an impact. Okay. And what who found was that often if in a subclinical, not a subclinical, sorry, a subfertile couple, uh, out of three years, they will tend to get a pregnancy. So it's sort of like, you know, one might be super fertile, one might not. But out of, out of a three-year period, usually you'll get a pregnancy. Mm. But what I'm tending to find is that usually there's problems in both. Um, or it'll be that it's not optimal. That's where, you know, I have, um, commonly I'll have couples come in where the woman might be 10 years older than the male. Yep. I know I will get a pregnancy out of those ones. Oh, okay. It's very rare. I don't, even though that she might be 45, uh, sorry, 43 to 45, because the guy's a lot younger, Right. I will tend to find that I will get a pregnancy. And that's what started me thinking, hang on, is it the age of the egg or is there an impact here from the guy as well? Yeah. So conversely, do you find greater issues when there's an older husband and a younger wife? Uh, not greater, but... Or different issues? Different, different issues. And it will depend on the exact, you know, what we were saying before, the resilience of the person, um, how well their absorption is. So I'm commonly dealing with gut because I need them to break down their proteins properly, to go into the amino acids so that we can build up the DNA of this egg and sperm scenario. You know, infertility, the thing is is that fertility is not needed for the body to survive. So it's like that canary down the mine shaft. Yeah. It's the first thing your body's going to give up. You've got this really high nutritious yep. situation here. And it goes, where can we get our nutrients from? Because I'm not sleeping really well and I'm sort of, you know, um, burning the candle at both ends and I'm drinking a beer. And this body goes, here's a great nutrient source. And so, yeah. So it, talking about toxins and pollutants and things like that, how much of an issue do you find this in couples in the 21st century? It, again, it's going to depend on the person. So you could have someone that's overweight who is handling um, that very well. Um, so I've had girls at 148 kilos fall pregnant. Right. So, um, and then you'll have somebody else that might be 80 kilos that's going, that's not ovulating yep. because that is not great for them to be that weight. So is that more along that... Um, you know, hereditary line where mm, you exactly like the, um, the thing that's singing off in my head is the fat, fertile, fertile, flatulent Mediterranean lady who gets gallstones, but she they're really fertile. They're overweight, but they're really fertile. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. That's why it's it's you you real the more science you know and the more fine tune you can put you know you you're putting that person in their context. You're mm. putting them in their hereditary context, in their lifestyle context. You know they might be really toxic. You know, I always detox everybody, but, um, you know, I'll start off with a detox, but then I'll be supporting the liver function because the liver's one of those things that's going to, you know, that whole P450 enzyme scenario um, and where it's, you know, you load it up with a whole heap of stuff to do. It's not going to do the stuff that are fine tuning hormones. Yeah. So um, it's more of what I often say to people is, look, wherever you can help your liver not have to do this work. You're going to, I'm going to encourage the good hormones, mm. but if you keep doing this, it's like we're taking two buckets out and putting two buckets in of water in a sinking ship. You're not getting anywhere. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so yeah, it just, it is really that, you know, that funnel effect. effect. That's what I tend to do. I, I get as much information as I can from both people and I keep funneling down and, and fine tuning. And that's that macro micro sort right. of scenario. And you say that patients often come to you after failing multiple courses mm. of IVF, mm. multiple cycles. Do you find ever that the act of detoxing has a negative effect on them, i.e. they start to unload all of these hormones or their liver wakes up. For instance, I remember one lady who I did not do a service to. I actually referred her off (laughs) because she had amenorrhea and I Mm. caused horrible, Mm. horrible acne, cystic Mm. acne in this lady. Mm. She wanted me to keep treating her. I couldn't. I just couldn't do it. Mm. I sent her off to somebody who was more specialised than Mm. I. And it was because I'd I'd really stirred some stuff Mm. up. Mm. Do you find that's common? Like the load on the liver, is that heavy after doing multiple cycles? Or is Mm. it just like, as you say, this... Resilience. It's the resilience. Right. So it depends. So I'll have someone that's done heaps of um, IVF and I'll tell them, look, you know, obviously when you're dealing with hormones, the hormones are going into the, the nucleus of the cell. So we've got to see that cell die and a new cell regenerate mm-hmm. before we're really seeing a much better body. And so often you're wanting to do a three-month thing beforehand and then you're reading it's the, the background. So if that person's got um, long, a lot of longevity in the family, they're going to handle a detox so much better than someone that's got quite a, a sickly background. So it's it's taking that into account. And then also, um, you know, what sort of tools you're using to detox um, and what else you're doing at the same time. So I, I often, as I detox, I'm also dealing with a whole heap of other biochemistry to make sure that they're handling the detox well. With regards to male versus female preparation yep. for pregnancy, we often concentrate on the, on the female because we see the females more often in practice, but it, it's then said that it's the males that really need quite a lot of work because there's 120 days for mm. spermatogenesis. How important do you find it and how easy is it to get the male on board? So very important, the male sperm, 20 20 sperm can fit across an egg, um, which is why the testes is on the outside of the body, okay? So they they get damaged very easily. Yep. A sperm analysis really helps us because it will tell me what sort of damage is happening. So is it the fact that, you know, he might be making a lot of sperm, but all of them are getting destroyed? So then you would look at, okay, what's what's denaturing this? Mm. Is it the fact that they're heating up or is it the fact that um, he's, you know, he's doing a whole heap of uh, gym work all the time thinking he's keeping really fit? Is it the fact that he sits around a lot and he's just, you know, heating everything up? Um, Or is it the fact that he's drinking or smoking or whatever? And, um, you know, it's, you're looking at that particular, is, is it the normal forms that are being affected or is it looking amazing and actually the DNA of the sperm's affected? Ah. So I always ask for DNA fragmentation. Right. And I'll do that because that tells us a hidden story. So a lot of people have gone down that IVF road and they've looked at their sperm and they're going, there's nothing wrong with me. And then I'll say, oh, have you got a DNA fragmentation? They go, what's that? And then we get it and we can see, there it is. It's really badly fragmenting. And the causes? 
the causes will be, um, well, oxidation. It will be, um, you know, how nutritious he is, how strong his um, uh, DNA is actually holding together because he's absorbing proteins really well mm. and he's eating enough proteins and all the rest. Um, usually, you know, um, the antioxidants are a big one there. Do you find that they work? Do you find oh, that antioxidants definitely. work? The antioxidants work. So I, with all my work, I never just get a result and leave it at that. Yeah, I don't do that at all. For me, I get a result. I will show them the result. I explain it in detail. And I will then get them to get another result two and a half months later or yep. three months later, and I'll show them how it's changed. Treatment level, yeah. The other thing that's happened is what I found, some of my patients come to me saying, look, we've done IVF. And when we did PGD testing, so the genetic testing of the embryos, all of them were bad. And we can't get any embryos that are healthy. And they're saying it's because I'm 39, you know. And then I will get the male DNA, and you can see it's very poor help that, it'll come back excellent. And then they, I, I know some of the times they'll have to go back down the IVF road. Some of them actually carry genetic defects and they've got to pick out the, the embryos that are the healthiest. Yep, yep. And they go back and go, oh my God, not only did I get 12 embryos and last time got three, but this time I got five that were amazing and I've never had any. And they you implant one and off they go and they fall pregnant and right. they know it's a really healthy embryo. So we've seen the changes. So just rescuing the male has made a massive has made a massive difference massive to impact. the survival yeah. of the gamete. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. So with regards to miscarriage, which you spoke about before and infections, which was really, really interesting mm, to me. Mm. These like a, a total undiscovered Mm. you know, um, cause of issues. What do you find are the main issues? Is it, a, as I said before, are we talking lifestyle issues here or are there age disparities? What do you find the main ones are? So when it comes to miscarriage, you're looking at things like uh, the hormonal balances in the luteal phase. So that's, that's important. You're looking at where they actually ovulated um, in reference to when that egg was ready. So often what happens is if the egg was developed, say, by day 14, but it wasn't kicked out to, say, day 18, then that egg's DNA has aged quite a bit. Right. Then you've gone and fertilised it, and then it might last to week six, and then you're finding that it's dying off, and they check it, and they go, yeah, it had a chromosomal issue. Then I get them more perfect with the way that they're doing that, and they go and fall pregnant, and they, they have a healthy baby. So often I'm working with gynos and obstetricians and they send me patients and some IVF specialists and they're sending me patients saying, we don't know what to do here. She's miscarrying. And every time she miscarries, there's a Downs or a Turner syndrome. Or yep. Is there anything you can do? And then that patient, we do a three-month thing, make sure that everything is great with her. She's filled with all the nutrients she's needing to help egg quality, work with him make sure that his lifestyle and her lifestyle are where it needs to be. And then they go on to have really healthy, maybe not even one, but two or even three babies afterwards, not miscarrying. So there's the egg quality, the embryo quality. There's the um, the luteal phase that can all of a sudden just, you know, uh, let the lining thin down and you've just let go of pregnancy. Then there's the stress levels as well. So that can have an impact because if you're, if you're in a really stressful environment and you're particularly sensitive to that, your body as an animal 
would say, drop this load. Yeah. You are not healthy enough to have something that's quite parasitic sucking the life out of you right now when I'm struggling to just keep you alive myself. So is that the, is that called teratosthesia? Is that where they, because you're improving nutrition and you have a defective blastocyst, that it recognises it as defective and then says you're out? So that's a defective one, right? right? I'm talking about getting rid of a really healthy oh, pregnancy. right. Sorry. Gotcha. So in in this case, it's sort of, you know, you've stressed the body out. You've told your body, I can't support I a pregnancy. I can't support it, right. Um, so there's that. Uh, infections are a big one. Mm. So where these particular infections come into knowledge uh, or say where they alert maybe a doctor is when you, or this is commonly, I'm not talking about all doctors, of course, um, is where you would miscarry, your waters will break at 17 weeks. Right. And the doctor's gone, what the hell? Like this was a healthy embryo. Yeah. What happened here? Yeah. So often, and they'll know, they'll go in and try and put a stitch in, they'll try and sort of, but it's rejecting that because usually there's an infection. Yeah. They will think down the road often of, okay, is this urea plasma or mycoplasma? Because they're known in that area or have had a history of doing that. But or it's, you might go into premature labour. You, you still might have the baby, but you've gone into labour at 27 mm. weeks. Mm. You know, um, in my practice in 18 years, I have had three premies. I should have had 15% of my babies should have been premature. Wow. And that, a lot of it, and even in those cases, one had an appendicitis and had to sort of, the other one, the doctor sort of went, look, your other two babies were preemie and I'm going on holiday, so I'd rather do this now. And so, and then the last one, she had lost two babies earlier and so she was lucky to sort of have this um, the baby and had a really healthy baby. So it just, you, there's a lot you can do to actually stop this from happening. Just going back to that concept, that teratosthesia, I remember reading it years ago and it was regarding folic acid, improving the health of the female so that it would reject a malformation rather than carrying the malformation. How important is this issue of teratosthesia or do you, do you find that it's really the incorrect expulsion of a healthy embryo? that's happening. Mainly. No, 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 no. Um, it's more, I suppose for me, it's like often people are coming to me with a long history of miscarriages. And then as a result, we're looking at all the different things that could cause that. Now yep. that could be cardiolipin levels. Um, it could be, um, thyroid issues that haven't been picked up. It could be, um, yeah, infections. It could be an egg, um, that's aging because that mother has been unhealthy um, and needs to do some heavy work. It could be that there's, you know, the father, there's an impact there, um, the hormonal impact. Like it just, there's so many issues. Um, another one is you didn't even form uh, an embryo properly in the first place, meaning, or an egg. So you're, you're expelling an egg that's not ready to be expelled. So now it's an immature egg. Right. You've fertilised an immature egg, you go to about five weeks pregnant and, and just, then that's over. That's it. Yeah. I remember reading this paper um, or a story, I should say, and it was saying complementary therapies inhibit IVF. Oh. How real an issue is this? How bad can natural therapies be with regards to their effect on IVF cycles? Mm, that's a good question. In my experience, it's enhanced everybody's IVF. Um, that's by far. And, um, and I, yeah, I've just had this happen now. One of my girls went off and did IVF and she didn't realize that I could actually aid that process. And I'd got her a lot healthier and she ended up with 17 eggs where in the past she got three. 
And she was just in a rush. She was, she was just going, doctors are telling me I'm nearly 40. I've got to do this. And I said to her, and they implanted too, and they didn't work. So she came to see me going, oh, no. And I said, that's okay. That's all right. I know the health of the embryos would be there, but we've got to set up the setup properly. So I gave her herbs before she ovulated. She ovulated and gave her herbs after she ovulated and she just told me she was pregnant first go. So in those cases, all the time, it makes a massive difference because if you can keep them healthy, if you can keep their liver supported while they're getting bombarded with these drugs, um, you're supporting them mentally, emotionally and all the rest and making sure that their stress levels are kept under control. So you've got all these other things um, as well as their nutrient levels. I mean, Mm. as the nutrients come, that's where it's been great to get the before and afters, these constant tests. I love it. I, mm. You know, I've had so many doctors go, I don't understand. She can't drop FSH. How does she do that? And then gets these results where it drops or, you know, you can't increase estrogens and then they've increased. You I know, it's that. been great. You sit in there go, yeah, you can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's really just by, you know, I never give estrogens. You're not giving them hormones. No. You're just stimulating their own production. Yeah. You know. It's a really interesting concept, and and it, I remember it being really alien to me as a nurse. This this concept of nourish, mm. of support, rather than inhibit, block. You know the the pharmaceutical mm, thing that we're mm, so used to, mm. and it's a real alien mentality to get your head around. But once you get your head around, it's like oh. Because mm. <laughs> for me, the inhibit part is support your natural inhibit in inhibitions of that of that particular hormone. Yeah. You know, like let your body do what it should be doing. It should be reading hormones, which is why do, doing the whole DHEA stuff is for me, not the best way to no. go because your body's going, oh, okay, so you've got heaps of DHEA yeah, like in your bloodstream. We'll then. just shut down yeah. our own production <laughs> yeah, then. Yeah, that's cool. right. <laughs> You've done biochemistry physiology, which is the perfect prerequisite to reproductive medicine. Mm. Then you've done natural therapies, which is the the um, practice, if you like, mm, you know, as mm. you say, the tools mm. that you use, that you choose to use. There are so many that haven't done those prerequisites of biochem physiology. There are so many that haven't done reproductive medicine as a specialty. As a responsible practitioner, what should we be really doing when we're seeing these people, mainly women, presenting to your practice with recurrent miscarriages or recurrent fertility issues? What should be their action? I think unless you've got a really deep understanding of what happens here, you need to refer on to people who do because what's going to happen with, and, you know, this is what I was saying before, often you're encouraging health. So they might become just a bit more fertile, but you're not fine-tuning. So what you're going to end up doing is where they went from infertility, they might become fertile but miscarry now because you didn't fine-tune. And that could be a whole range of things to fine-tune. So if you don't know, then you've got patients going through five miscarriages. And that's what's happened to me, where they've come to me going, oh, yeah, I've seen the naturopath and I've had three miscarriages now and I don't know what's happening. Um, and then, yeah, there's there's all the fine-tuning stuff there. But it's just otherwise there's going to be more heartache. It, yeah. It's risky. It's very risky. And I, I, I've got to say, I love the way that you question and question and question your patients to really fine tune, as you Mm. say, you know, to really do that detective work so that you have a real clear picture of what's going on. Mm. It really impresses me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, no, I really am impressed. But to me, it's care. Mm. 
It's got to do with the responsible care of your patients. And as you say, you know, they're going through heartache. Oh, 100%. It's not something that they can go, oh, we'll just do it next month. No, they've been doing this for years. Mm. So I really thank you for taking us through the important aspects of that. And i got to say, I look forward to chatting you with you again on FX Medicine, Elizabeth Mucci. Oh, thank you, Andrew. Appreciate that. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au, or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes, and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.